1987, Marcy and I bought our first home. And it was a 1,306 square foot, three bedroom, two bath house. It was brand new. We were the first ones to live in it. It was really special. And we got a smoking deal on an interest rate. We were paying 8.5%. And we were thinking, wow, this is great. Because in 1987, or actually 1985, interest rates, you ready for this, were 14 and 16% on a house. So when we got 8.5%, we went, this is great. This is great. Now, one of the things that was interesting about that house is that we went to sign the papers for the house, and it seemed like it just took us like hours to sign those papers. I know it didn't, but it just seemed like it. It was just one disclosure after another, another form, another this, another attorney making sure that whatever, you know, it just is what it, it just is what it is. Now, over the course of time, we've bought other houses and we've done the same thing, the signing process. And here's the thing. When you sign the papers, what you're doing is you are agreeing to something. You are agreeing to all of these things. And you're agreeing that you're actually going to pay your payment. You're going to stay current with your taxes. That's what you're agreeing to. And honestly, we're okay with that. We sign it because we're okay with it. We also kind of realize that if we don't do it, it's not going to turn out all that well for us. Okay. So there are consequences if you don't sign the papers. I mean, if you don't agree to what's there. But here's why we're okay with it. Because it's really a watershed moment. A what? A watershed moment. A watershed moment is a dividing point. It's a dividing point from which things will never be the same. It's that point in time here. From this point forward, everything is different. Everything is different. And that's what that was for us. We understood the consequences of not following through, but we were willing to make that commitment because we believed that this was a moment in time that was going to define us, that was going to help us, that was going to be great for us in every respect. And I would say it most likely has been. Now, so far on our study in Nehemiah, the, the series of Rebuild, we've witnessed amazing leadership from Nehemiah. He has He's rallied the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the gates, and it's completed. They did that in, a, in 52 days. He has faced opposition. Uh, he has led with distinction, and probably most of all, we see in his, in his life, in his character, a person of prayer. He really dedicated himself to being a person of prayer. And him and Ezra, who is now kind of expounding the law of God to the people, there has been a real renewal and a, re, a, re, a revival of the people in their spiritual interest, which is significant for them. And really, what we have witnessed at what was the Watergate, that center of the center of city life, is really a watershed moment. Something's going to happen from this time forward that where things are never going to be the same again. And that's what we're witnessing in the study that we're going to, or the, where we're going to look today in chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah. And here's what I here's what I want to leave with you. I want to leave with you this phrase to begin with. Rebuilds rebuilds require watershed moments. A point in time from which things will never be the same. If you're rebuilding a life, if you're rebuilding a business, if you're rebuilding a relationship, if you're rebuilding your faith, whatever it looks like, it really does require watershed moments. Moments 
where there, there just a, is a point in time. From that point forward, everything changes. In a, a moment ago, we just sang a song that, that talked about coming out of a, a place of darkness, a, a place of need, into a new day. You see, when you and I came to faith in Christ, it was a watershed moment. From that point forward, what does Scripture say? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are gone. Everything becomes new. It's a watershed moment. And in many respects, that's exactly what we're witnessing in chapters 9 and 10, the book of Nehemiah. What happens in chapter 9 is we, we are privy to a prayer that the people pray. Now, they've come out of this great um, time of fasting and hearing the word of the Lord and consecration, and it's just, it's been a really powerful time. And so in chapter 9 of verse number 1, this is what we read, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So think about it. They spent hours listening and, and reading the word of the law, and then they spent hours kind of dedicating themselves to what they have read. In this prayer that follows in chapter 9, now this is not in your notes, but I'm, not if you're following along in version. So I'm going to go through these quickly, but there are some points that are really important through chapter 9 that the people as they pray, they bring to light and they talk about the character, the nature, and the qualities of God. They do it in 10 different ways during this chapter. The first thing they recognize is that God is eternal. That God is eternal. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 5 says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. The God to whom they are praying and the God whom we serve is everlasting. He is eternal. Always bear in mind that because God is eternal, he has a perfect view of all things in your life and in mine. He sees from a perspective that's unique, and I love that. The second thing is that in verse number six, we see that God is unique. Nehemiah 9, 6, you alone are God. They bring this out very clearly. You alone are God. You have to understand, all of the nations that surrounded Israel, and from where they have come, from, from Persia, the Persian kingdom in Babylon, understand, this is, these are cultures that were idolatrous. They worshipped idols. And so here, they're just making this declaration, God, you're unique. You alone are God. There is no other God. In Psalm 135, this is an interesting verse, verse number 18, talks about idolatry. And the psalmist says this, those who make them, listen to this, those who make them will be like them. So will all who trust in them. What does it say? That they're lifeless and dead. There's nothing there. There is no substance. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything today, Gary? There are a lot of modern-day idols in which we place our trust. And I will tell you, they are man-made. They are man-made. And those who make them are lifeless. And those who follow what they make, there's no life. It's dead. But God is unique. He alone is God. 
He is from everlasting to everlasting. And we can put our trust and hope in him. The third thing they talk about is God is powerful. God is powerful. Nine, verse, chapter 9, verse 6, you made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is all powerful. And here's a phrase. I want you to, I'm going to do my best for you to just get this into your mind and into your heart. You ready? A God who made everything out of nothing can do anything. One more time, a God who made everything out of nothing can do anything. Hallelujah. We serve a mighty, mighty God. Number four, God is a promise keeper. And and then the prayer, they talk about Abraham and the promises that were kept to Abraham. And also, God is a God, number five, God God is a compassionate. Aren't you grateful that God is compassionate? I love, I love this. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry. Compassion means that someone else's heart breaks for our heartbreak. Someone else's heart breaks for our heartbreak. I'm grateful that God's heart breaks for mine. The sixth is that God is our provider. Verses 13 to 15. He revealed to his people his presence. He gave them his laws he rained down on them bread from heaven called manna. He made sure that over 40 years of time, their clothes or their shoes didn't wear out. God provided for them. And just so you know, God will provide for us. God will provide for us. The seventh is that God is merciful. Merciful. In chapter 9, verse 17, you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Hallelujah. He's also a generous God. Verse 21 says, for 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. And I would tell you that sometimes, even in the midst of, you ready? For a $1.9 trillion bailout that's coming our way, we are still in great need in the midst of a wilderness. I'm telling you, that is not the answer to our needs. Our greatest, our our answer is in God who provides for us above and beyond all that we can need. Amen? He's also a patient God. Boy, aren't you grateful for that one. He's great. He's patient. And then finally, he's faithful. Chapter 9, verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous and you have acted faithfully. Hallelujah. It's a great prayer. I, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 9. It's a great prayer. And the qualities that, that are pointed out throughout that chapter are powerful. So think, now here's, what, here's where we're going to go. When you hear, hearing of the word of God, fasting and confession is what, is, is what they've been experiencing. Remember, for what, a quarter of the day they do this, and then a quarter of the day they do this. And then they pray this prayer. And coming out of that prayer, here's what we read in chapter 9, verse 38. Look at it with me. In view of all of this, okay, what, in view of all of what? Or you could say, Therefore. Everything that has been said, everything that has been done, something now is coming, okay? Ready? In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. What's happening? There's a watershed moment coming from which nothing will ever 
be the same again. They have been worshiping. They have been hearing the word of God. And now they have prayed and they're saying, God, in view of all of this, this is what we're going to do. I'm telling you, that's powerful. I wonder if what our life would look like if we approach life like that. When we hear the word of God, when we come together and worship, when we confess, when we just consecrate ourselves unto God, and then we get to a point where we say, okay, in view of all of that, this is what I'm going to do. A watershed moment. A watershed moment. There's a man by the name of Derek Kidner, and I have read him on occasion, and I have a couple of his books in my, in my library. I want to paraphrase something he said about this moment in time. This is my paraphrase. He says that Nehemiah bequeathed, in other words, gave to, okay, gave to, the, gave to Israel the following, a viral faith. What is a viral faith? A viral faith is something that's contagious. Something, we all know what viruses are like, right? I think we kind of get what virus is. A viral faith. Nehemiah gave to the people a viral faith, but not only did he give them a viral faith, he gave them a faith that was clear, understandable. And here's the part that is so significant and why it's a watershed moment. It never departed from Israel from that point forward. Israel, the Jewish people to this day, remain what? Distinct, set apart. Why? I think because of this watershed moment. And what a challenge to us, the people of God today. What might that watershed moment look like? I want to talk about three things briefly this morning. That watershed moment. The first part of this is the commitment that they're making. The first part of this is the commitment was personal. The commitment was personal. There was something that was, that was individual about this. As you begin chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 1, this is what we read. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Now, why do I start with that? Because as you begin chapter 10, that's what you see. Our leaders are going to do this. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah was the first one to sign his name to the declaration. Here it is. I'm the one doing it. I'm the one. It is followed by 84 different names from that point forward, whether they're priests, Levites, leaders, family members, whatever they were. Along with this, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples. I want to tell you, this is impressive. It is memorable, and it is extremely personal. When you see those names, understand these are real people in real time saying, this is what I am making. I am making this declaration. It's, it's a leadership principle. Nehemiah leads, and it's very personal. You may not know this man's name, but if you're a little bit of a history follower like I am, I'm a little one, not a big one, but you may recognize his name, but you may not. His name is Major Dick Winters. This was a, an incredible man from, he was... Uh, during World War II, he commanded Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And he's famous for a, a series that was done following uh, Easy Company called Band of Brothers. A book written, and then there was a, a mini-series done on Band of Brothers. Dick Winters was a leader. And this is what Dick said. He said, if you're a leader, you lead the way. If you're a leader, you lead the way. Not just on the easy ones, but 
you take the tough ones too. And what is so significant to me is when you see Nehemiah, he starts it out. He is a leader's leader. And here is a simple phrase. Don't forget this. Leaders lead. Leaders lead. And that's what Nehemiah did. Husbands in this room, lead your families. Lead your families. Bosses, lead your employees in integrity. Students, lead in godliness. These are watershed moments. It's personal. I'm a, I believe this. I, I am following Christ. This is what I'm going to do. I believe this. And I'm going to lead in that capacity. Psalm 78, verse 72. And David led them with a pure heart and guided them very wisely. John 13. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Listen to this. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master. Nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Watershed moments are personal. This is a personal call. This is not something just a collective call to a big group of people. No, this is personal. This is personal. When you see name after name after name, you realize that watershed moments are personal. It's a personal decision. The second is the commitment is public, was public. Marcy and I are getting ready, I think June-ish, May-ish, something like that. We will complete 44 years of full-time ministry. Honestly, I am blown away by that. And every time, and really, literally, every time I think about it, I'm saying, I never, I never would have, I guess I, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, I never would have thought that would have happened. I would have hoped it would have when I was coming out of, you know, school and all of the things we were doing to prep. But it's just hard to believe it's been over, four, it's been over 40 years. Uh, and I've had, we've had so many amazing experiences. I mean, the amount of people that we've had to, the privilege of interacting with over the years and investing in their lives and them investing in our lives and the places that we've been, it's just, it's just been an incredible life. I mean, it really has. And some of those moments have been very private and some of those moments have been very public. I remember a time we were pastoring in Burlingame, uh, that's near the San Francisco airport if you're not familiar with it. And we had gone to our, our annual uh, gathering of all of our churches and ministers. And one of those evenings, I, was, I felt, very, felt very compelled to respond to uh, the call that, the, that those, the person who was preaching that night to come forward and spend some time with the Lord in prayer and just kind of rededicate myself. I don't even remember what it was about, frankly. But I do, re- I do remember this. And you're going to think this is really shallow, okay? I remember what I was wearing, okay? You go, What? Yeah, it was, and there's a reason I remember it. I was wearing wearing a cream-colored jacket. It was almost white. That was still at the time when we wore suits, ties, sport coats, and I was still a rebel. I was wearing a sport coat and not a suit, so I was still a little rebellious. But I remember it because it was white. And I'm thinking, here's what it came to my mind. Gary, if you walk down the aisle, everybody's going to see you. You're going to stick out like a, a light bulb in the dark. Well, 
I thought, well, okay, whatever. So I got out of the, my seat and I went forward and yep, I stuck out like a, you know, whatever, a light bulb in the dark. And it was, it was very public. And I have a, had a dear friend who saw me and came and prayed with me. And I'm very grateful for that. But here's the thing. That commitment was public. That was public. And, and I had to push out of my mind this thought. If you respond, everybody's going to know. And I want to tell you something. A commitment, a watershed moment requires a public commitment. Not just a private one. It's not just being what some might consider a closet Christian. You know, I'm, I'm a person of faith when nobody really can see me or notice. I'm just going to say nobody's really going to know about my faith. Oh, don't go there because that's not, a, that's not something that's going to prove to be effective in your life of faith. It's not going to be the testimony. It's not going to be the leadership moment that each of us, I believe, as followers of Christ really want to live out. You see, following Jesus, catch this, following Jesus requires going public. Requires going public. Acts chapter 2, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he, <clears throat> now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand in the Father, as he promised, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour upon us, just as you've seen here today. Now listen to what Peter says. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him, to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. All who have been called by the Lord God, Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What is the point of that? There is a public declaration of their faith. They ask the question, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. These are public things. You see, here's the way I would say it. Today, if you have not gone public with your faith, confess him as Savior and declare him as Lord. Confess him as Savior. That is a private moment. But the declaration of Lordship of Christ is not private. That's public. That's public. And probably the most significant way that we go public with our faith is to be baptized in water. If you've not been baptized in water, you need to be baptized in water. It's time. It's time. It is not time to not be public with your faith. It is time to declare the fact that this is a watershed moment. Christ has changed my life. Therefore, from this moment forward, I am following Jesus. And that is something that we declare before our family and before our friends and before the world. The commitments of watershed moments are lived in public. And then finally, the commitment is practical. One of the challenges that I face each and every week as I prepare for weekends is my hope as I bring to you God's word is that it's something that you can use tomorrow. That it's not just something that just stays here and you go, well, you know, that was a nice little talk and, you know, I learned a little bit about this and that and then you walk away and say, oh, wait till next week to learn something else. No, my hope is, is that you take it on Monday and you're able to apply it into your life and faith. Practical. You see, this commitment was practical because as you read now through chapter 10, something happens. 
they make five different declarations. See, you see, they're signing their name to something. But what is it they're signing their name to? They're going to be, it's very personal because they're putting their names here. It's public because they're going to let everybody see it. But it's also practical. There are five areas that they address. The first one is this. They were committed to the law of God. They were committed to the law of God. Here the folks are committing to what I would call a general obedience to the laws of God. We will do what you have said in your word we would do, what we were to do. We make that commitment. And that is significant. Now I understand we talk about obedience often. And you say, why do we talk about it so often? Because it is so significant to each and every one of us. Remember, they're signing a binding agreement and they're saying, we will commit to being obedient to the laws of God. I think anything, and I, let me say it this way, we don't think anything about requiring obedience of our children. Not a bit. Nope, obey me. And we're done with, no, I said obey. We don't think of anything about taking our, our dogs to puppy school. So they can learn to be obedient. But man, when the preacher says something about being obedient to the word of God, well, you know, I, I don't know about that. No, we, what? You see, listen to the people's response. It's really powerful. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 29. They joined their fellow Israelites and their leading men in taking an oath, which was tied to a curse <laughs> in case they broke in case they broke the oath they promised to follow the teachings of God which they had been given through Moses a servant of God and to obey all the commands rules and laws of the Lord our God do you realize how significant that is they understood that if they were disobedient there was a curse connected to it that's what Moses had said in Deuteronomy that if you if you don't obey you can expect this to happen they said we're good with that we're good with it. We are all in when it comes to this obedience thing. And I wonder, are we? Jeremiah 17, excuse me, Jeremiah 7, verse 23. This is what I told them. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do everything as I say, and, I, and all will be well. But my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backward instead of forward. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to go backward. I want to go forward. But you might be saying, Gary, how do I, how, what do I do? How, what does this obedience thing look like? I'm going to give you one scripture, and I think it's the, easiest, it's the easiest way to get your arms around obedience. Here you are. Ready? Mark 12, 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, strength, and the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. If you can obey that, you're on the right track. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, you're on the right track. Then you're going to love people as God loves them. To obey, to obey is better, okay? To obey is better. The second is that they were committed to godly homes, Godly homes. Chapter 10, verse 30 says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Now, don't dismiss this verse as being something, well, that's just kind of Old Testament stuff. No, they were committing to be a, a community 
that was set apart as far as their families were concerned. And I'm going to challenge every one of us and those online this morning, everyone, to be godly families, to be a godly family. And I'm going to say something that may be controversial that you may not like, but I want you to hear me. I'm tired of culture and I'm tired of media telling me what a modern family looks like. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of agendas that continue to be promoted on, on television, in commercials that are absolutely contrary to the way that God has designed the family. I'm tired of it. There is a blessing when we raise godly families. There is a blessing when we hold to what Scripture says about the family. So let's do it. I realize that families at times have struggles. I realize that divorce happens. I realize that things can go off. I get it. But God is a redeeming God. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is filled with grace. He, em he embraces us. He loves us with a love that is everlasting. Yes, if we admit that, hey, I messed some stuff up. God, forgive me. You know what he's, what, you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna forgive and he's gonna rebuild. But it takes watershed moments to say, no, we're making a commitment to have a godly family and to be a godly family. I won't take the time to read Ephesians chapter five, verses 21 and through chapter six, verse four. It talks about the family, about husbands loving wives, wives obeying and children obeying and fathers not exasperating their children but raising them up in the instruction, fear of the Lord. The third is that they were committed to honoring God. They were committed to honoring God. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, we won't buy goods or grain on the Sabbath or any other sacred day, or even from foreigners. Every seven years, we'll set our fields rest, and we'll cancel all the debts. You say, yeah, that's about the Sabbath, so what does that have to do with us? Well, we're not bound by the Old Testament ceremonial law of keeping the Sabbath, of worshiping only from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. We're not bound by that, but there is a principle at play here, and let me illustrate it this way. How many of you are going to go to Chick-fil-A today for lunch? Nobody. I wonder if you're going to go to Hobby Lobby today to pick up something for your house. Nope, not today. There are two very successful corporations in America who honor the one in seven principle. And God has blessed them. And if you look at a business model, every business person would say, you cannot do well under that model. I beg to differ with you. God put something in motion that said, one in seven, rest, worship serve, do something different, set yourself apart. And what I'm suggesting this morning is that we do the same thing. Let's figure out a way to honor God in all things. They did, and they affixed their names to it. They made a binding agreement about it. Pretty significant. Also, number four, they were committed, excuse me, number, they were number, was that number five? That was number four, I'm right. Good. They were committed to generosity. They were committed to generosity. From verses 32 to 39, the people make commitments regarding their generosity. And it really is an all-inclusive. I mean, you, you, read those, you read those eight verses, and it's just everything. We're going to do this. 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 I mean, it's just over the top. 
They just say, we're committed to generosity. And they were committed to proportionate giving, sacrificial giving, first fruits, obedience giving, even giving an offering, listen to this, to keep the, the wood supplied for the fire on the altar not to go out. And that was really directed at those who were poor. They didn't have any means to do it, but they could go collect some wood and they could bring it back. Everything is included. It's just a sig- incredibly significant. Here's the challenge. Here's the, here's the challenge to each of us. Be generous. Be generous. And you see, it's not just generosity of, of, of your money and resource, and that's wonderful, and that's probably the most tangible way we can do it. But it's also be generous with your time. Be generous with the abilities that God has given you. And I know you are. I'm grateful for the generosity of this congregation. But if you have not taken that journey into generosity, I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you. Take a step of faith. God will provide. It's a watershed moment. Watershed moments change everything. The generosity that we express, God will meet your needs. 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get only a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and not reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good promise. And then finally, number five, they were committed to the house of God. Chapter 10, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of God. I love that. I love that. I've grown up in the church, and I have, I'm grateful for my experiences having grown up in the church and now served in the capacity that I have served for a whole bunch of years. I love the church of God. I love the house of God. I love this place that we call the church. Don't neglect it. There's really a couple of things that I want you to carry away from this. The first is this. This was very tangible to them. They were supplying everything needed for the temple in Jerusalem. That's what this is. I mean, that's the, that's the easiest application. And your generosity does that for us. But there's something more at work here. And Max Lucado, Max Lucado would say it this way. He called it this in a book he wrote a number of years ago called The Great House of God. You know what that is? It's right here. We are the great house of God. You bear, you are the, you bear God himself in your life because you're a follower of Jesus. And I wonder, are you neglecting the great house of God? And that comes in a lot of ways. You need to get the appropriate rest that you need. That's why the Sabbath is so important. You need to get the right kind of exercise to keep you healthy. You need to make sure that your diet is good. You say, oh man, you are meddling this morning. Would you stop it? It's true. We need to manage our life. This is the greatest gift that God has ever given you, is life itself. How are you doing with that? Remember 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for you you were bought with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. How are we doing? Watershed moments are practical. There are five different ways to be practical. This was a watershed moment for the people in Israel, and it's a watershed moment for us. 
So I wonder this morning, what is God saying to you? What, what, is it, what is personal to you today? What is it that we need to make public today? What are these practical things that most affect your life of faith? You know, it, is it simply obedience? Godly homes? Honoring God? Generosity? Or just caring for the house of God? What is it? Because these kinds of things are, are personal and they're public. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to pray. And after we pray, we're just going to make some public declarations. All right? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today and thank you for your word. And I pray that in these next few moments, let this be truly a watershed moment for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Let's stand up. And this is a little different than what I had hoped to do, but sometimes you just have to kind of go with what's available to you, all right? So here's what we're going to do. I do this a lot, and you're going you're gonna, to, you'll get it, okay? You'll get it. Now, at, those of you at home, those of you online with us this morning, here's what I want you to do. And you got to help me with this. You got to help me. I want you, either you're maybe on Facebook, you might be on YouTube, and there's an opportunity for comments. So here's what I want you to do. When you're responding practically this morning, when you're kind of going public with this, here's what you got to do. And I say, oh, do I really? Yeah, you do. You do. Because a watershed moment is so important. I want you to type into the comment just your name. That's it. Just your first name. I'll even let you get away with just your initials. But I'll just be fine. You're just saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'm all in. I'm going to go public with this. Because I believe this watershed moment is so important. And that's what I'm going to ask us to do. But here's how we're going to do it in the house. You ready? We've done this. You've done this a hundred times since I've been at this, as, since I've been your pastor. Maybe 150 times. Maybe 500 times. I don't know. But here we go. But I want you to understand something. This is a binding agreement. What? Yeah. Not to me, but to God. I believe God takes seriously our commitments. Amen? I don't think he just dismisses them. And I think we shouldn't be so, you know, so quick to make a decision without, if we don't really mean it. So I hope you really mean it. So what is it this morning? Is it obedience to God? So here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through these five things. And when something strikes a chord in your life, I want you to just, again, lift your hand. But don't, but don't close your eyes, okay? Don't do that because we're making it public. Because if I really wanted to do this, I'd have a big thing up here and I'd have you come forward and sign your name. You go, oh, hold on, you're getting a little weird, okay? If I could, I would. That was really my first idea. And I thought, that would be so much fun. And then you go, no, that would not be fun. But we can't lift our hand, can't we? But don't lift it unless you mean it. And I'm not, I'm not in a position to judge. I'm not judging, okay? If you don't feel that you can, it's okay. Because this is between you and God. This is between you and me. It's between you and God. Okay? That's what's important. So, here are the five things. I want to obey God. I want to obey God. I want to have a godly home. 
I want to honor God. This idea of rest and worship and serving and yes, I want to be generous. And I will not neglect the house of God. I'll take care of what God has given me. Jesus, you have seen hands lifted, I believe, in integrity this morning. And God, I pray that you would honor each and every request. And every person online this morning that's sending their name in, Jesus' name, let this be a watershed moment in the name of Jesus. And if there is one in our midst today, if there is one online that has never confessed you as Savior and declared you as Lord, I pray that that would be right at this moment. If there are those in this place that have not been baptized in water, I pray they would figure out a way. Let us know that we're going to, we're going to, I want to be baptized and we will follow up. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, these are watershed moments. Change us, oh God, we pray. Change us, oh God, we pray, as we make a binding agreement to a God who loves us, to an everlasting God, God who will take us and walk with us and work with us in the midst of these watershed moments from which things will never be the same. Thank you, Jesus. Let's worship our great God. I'm inviting our prayer team to come as well during these moments of prayer and worship. Let's worship God.